Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we sit down with everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Good morning from the great state of Maine. As usual, aboard Mighty Sparrow, here on a very typical Maine morning where it is raining, it's a little foggy, and it's going to be a cold day work, that is for sure, but... Boats must go in, the tide waits for no one, and we will be out there getting the job done, which is pretty cool. Uh, It's not going to be the greatest uh, start to the day. Hopefully it'll clear up a little bit, but other than that, I wanted to get into some cool news from from my little little world. Uh, I received an email yesterday from a young man and I'm not going to mention his name yet not until I hear back from him and make sure he doesn't mind me uh, mentioning and referencing him Uh, but I figure he told me about his trip so it's out there he's doing it so I might as well just go ahead and talk about it so I got this quick little email and it's from a West Sail owner, and his his boat is Sequoia. He took off originally from San Francisco, sailed it down to San Diego, and in his brief email, basically he's going for a nice, big, long, solo, nonstop uh, trip from San Diego all the way down to Tasmania. So that's uh, that's I. I think that's about probably 10 or 12,000 miles uh, across some pretty big stretch. Well, the biggest stretch of ocean in the world. I'm not 100% sure what his route will be. If, if I, I would assume he's going to probably try and get south uh, into the southeast trade winds and then ride those all the way across and... Uh, and then slowly cut down through the variables, probably go north of New Zealand, and then all the way down to the South Tasman Sea and reach Tasmania. 10,000 miles, probably doing oof, average average of four, four and a half knots. Wow. It's going to be a, a long trip. We're, we're talking three months, maybe more, something like that. Depending on the wind, the trades, the trades are pretty, pretty interesting in a West Sail. If you if you catch them right and you're able to reach and broad reach your way for a long, long time, which I would think he would be able to, he'll really be able to bang out 130 miles a day, probably on average. So that's just a, a little bit over five knots, and if he can do that, almost all the way over until he gets above about New Zealand or so then then he'll be uh he'll be styling but what an adventure and and what an honor really to have somebody reach out and want to tell me so I I and I was able to get a link to his uh his tracking thing I think he must be using an Iridium Go cuz it's going through uh something called Predict Wind which sort of shows you the current conditions and it shows you his, his full track. So it's like a constant tracker. And again, if I, uh, if I get permission, I'll be able to, uh, throw that out on the, throw that link out either on my website or, um, <clears throat> throw it out on the podcast in the description notes. Cause it's kind of cool. I I've always found it, it pretty neat and it's something I wanted to use. I think I looked into it for the last trip, but at the time, I was dealing with so many other things with the boat that I I just didn't need to add one more complicated system that I not only had to purchase, but I had to figure out how to use. And I don't know. I, I, I do have... There is something in me that doesn't really... I, I don't really like having that tracking unit that's constantly going, constantly taking a little bit of electricity and uh, 
There's something sort of strange that I don't really enjoy about that because I, when I go out there, I, I sort of like to be cut off from everything. Um, besides maybe a daily update or or whatnot. But good on them because I actually really like to. I enjoy watching because I can. You can wake up in the middle of the night and instead of checking some random thing on your phone, you can actually dial that in real quick and see what his conditions are and where he is and how fast he's going and all that sort of stuff. And it's kind of interesting because sometimes you see you see the track change completely and the boats we go way down and you get a little worried because you're you're thinking holy cow oh my gosh what, what's going on did the person fall overboard or what and usually it's it's you know they've they've gone hove to or something to either get some sleep cook some food or fix something and then hours later boom the track goes back so kind of neat but uh, i like i said i was i was pretty honored to to get an email and um I don't know, just hear about the voyage. It gives me something to look forward to for the rest of the summer and sort of keep up on things. And there, there'll there be little tiny updates about, you know, what, what uh, he's going through and, and what he's seeing out there and all that sort of stuff. So good on you. West Sale, I believe it's West Sale number 29. I'll have to check that out, but it is uh, Sequoia. So good luck on that voyage. That's going to be a long one. There are... A lot of places he can go ahead and pull in for pit stops along the way. Um, that's kind of the interesting thing between the difference between the Atlantic and the Pacific. In the Atlantic, there are just such random, faraway islands, but they're all so spread out. Uh, when I think about this one little voyage I had always planned on doing, which is called the, I called it the Atlantic 8, where you pretty much go and sight all eight of the Atlantics, uh, both North and South Atlantic, the islands out there. Because you really, you have, you have the Azores, you have Bermuda, uh, you have the Cape Verde Islands. Um, there are a few more that are really kind of closer to Africa, like the Canaries and the Madeiras, uh, I hadn't really calculated them in. And then you get to the South Atlantic and you see Trinidade and then you say Tristan de Chuna, if I pronounce that right. And then you, as you come back up, you would see St. Helena and then Ascension Island. And then there's uh, Sao Paul Island, which is a really teeny little speck. And those were sort of the eight that you, you could use to make a sort of a really beautiful figure eight pattern in the North and South Atlantic. And you, you have to sort of touch the Southern Ocean and you have to be in the North Atlantic to get over to the Azores. So you get sort of that adventure sailing in. Uh, but the vast majority of it is the trade winds interrupted just briefly by two trips through the doldrums, which are always, always interesting and always very, very beautiful. So a pretty cool trip, uh, but compare that to the Pacific, which once you get over to the South Pacific, which is typically a couple thousand miles away from the American continents, um, then you're, you're in islands and atolls, and they're everywhere from... The Marquesas to Fiji to Tahiti to you name it. I mean, there's there's thousands and thousands of islands out there. So a little different. Uh, you know, both have pros and cons. I've always wanted to get over there and see all of those islands. But that takes time. It takes money. And it takes, uh, I would think it takes a, I, or at least I would prefer to do that with more than just myself. I feel like that's an experience that you not only want to really share, but you also could use some help on going in through all those cuts and, you know, all the trouble of anchoring and, and doing all that sort of stuff gets eased off quite a bit when you can have a crew of people. And I think it would just be a heck of a lot more fun that way. So. I don't know. I always thought that would be sort of the retirement uh, adventure once I finally get my stuff together and <laughs> start saving money instead of spending it on adventures. But, uh, you know, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. What can I say? <clears throat> but uh, today, yeah, I sort of thought as I as I rolled out of bed this morning, it's kind of interesting with 
with the work that I'm doing now, and I suppose with my age, I guess, uh, I hate to admit it, but you know, this, this sort of manual labor type job, uh, is pretty hard on the body. And by the time I finish up work, holy cow, I've, I don't have a whole lot left in me, uh, physically and both mentally. I'm hoping that's going to change because it was pretty sedimentary or sedentary winter, and I definitely did not keep up on the workouts and all that sort of stuff. So I'm starting to ground zero here, folks, and I'm trying to build back all the strength that I once had. Uh, and yeah, I, uh, I'm beat. I'm beat by the end of the day, and my brain doesn't work. And so the book is sort of on hold right now a little bit. And, uh, Mostly, I just I try the, the thought of trying to do a podcast interview and, and, you know, the people I'm doing these interviews with up in Maine, they're all working as well. So end of the day, it's pretty hard to nail people down. <clears throat> but point of it is, I think my my whole lifestyle has to sort of shift this uh, this summer to a early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy and wise sort of thing where... I'm essentially last for a couple hours after work, then I hit the head or hit the hay and then get up between the hours of four and five in the morning so that I have time. Luckily in Maine at this time of year, it's already getting light by four in the morning. So that kind of takes some of the sting out of it. Uh, I know in the past when I wake up and it's still dark out and I try and roust myself out of bed, it's a little tricky, but when it's already light, it's not so bad. And then at least I can have a few hours before I head into work where my brain is clear, I'm fresh. Uh, I do typically think pretty well in the morning. And I don't know, I give give a bit of writing a shot. Uh, but I also wanted to bank up a few of these uh, solo podcasts where I actually have subjects uh, that I want to talk about. Like today, I was thinking about delving into the sort of training days go back in the way way back machine a little bit to um to when i first got sparrow and and took off down to the caribbean to try and figure out what this whole solo sailing thing was all about and uh, i sort of peeled through some of the log books and all that sort of stuff and <clears throat> it was cool it's um all that stuff's pretty ingrained in my brain because those were those were definitely some very interesting, fun, scary, exciting times. And I don't know, I kind of wanted to share that because I know I do get asked that quite a bit of, of how I got started and what what I did to get ready for the trip around the world and, and all that sort of stuff. So I figured, you know, why not? Let's uh, Let's just sort of dive right in and get it from the start. And really, if I have to say what what was the beginnings of the sailing stuff, you know, then you got to go way back because I essentially had, uh, you know, learned to sail on small boats, then really got hooked into it, started working on bigger boats and doing yacht deliveries and, and things like that. And working down in Florida, cleaning engine rooms, and then uh, doing day work on boats and all that. But essentially it was, it was trying to build up bigger and bigger trips and, these were all with other people. I was the low man on the totem pole and then slowly working my way up to first mate and such, but ended up doing the first, first transatlantic from Antigua down all the way across to, I think we ended up in Palma, uh, in the Spanish islands in the Mediterranean. And that was in 2000, that was in 2003, then in 2004, Took a catamaran from South Africa all the way back to the Caribbean. That was a long one. That was like 6,000 miles. We were out at sea for 36 days. And we were we were moving on that one because it was uh, sort of one of the nice new charter catamarans that they had purchased. And then ended up doing another crossing from Antigua all the way to Turkey and that was on that was on like a hundred foot boat that was pretty cool uh, but yeah I mean those were some of the bigger trips and I really enjoyed that I enjoyed the two three weeks at sea before pulling in somewhere typically it was the Azores 
And <clears throat> like I said, I, you know, I, I've always sort of found those books to be so amazing. Um, Peter Nichols book, uh, Voyage for Mad Men, God Forsaken Sea. Uh, I can't remember who wrote that one, but, uh, and then obviously Motissier and Rox, Robin Knox Johnson, all that. It just, yeah, I don't know, it just stuck with me. And those ideas, the thought of, of doing a big sail all the way around the world and the, the fears and the, the terrifying stuff down in the Southern Ocean, it drew me in and it drew me in well. And it always stuck with me, but it was one of those things. I think a solo sailing trip around the world without stopping is especially when you're in your 20s. Uh, it's one of those ideas that, yeah, it sounds like it'd be great. And I don't know, it just, it's it's such a, a, a large endeavor that, I don't know, it's, it's one of those things like, yeah, I'd like to go to the North Pole. Uh, <laughs> and if, you're, if you're, your life sort of takes you in a very specific path towards being able to get to the North Pole, then hey, that's that's sort of then it's it turns into something that's less of a dream and more of a reality uh, or an opportunity, I guess. And <clears throat> I don't know. I, I think that's uh, that's kind of what happened in my life. I had that idea and I stuck with the sailing, and yeah, eventually, yeah, I don't know. It just uh, it just clicked. But I do remember there was there was. Two two major points where I think were, you know, the idea of lighting a fire under your pants or under your chair. I can't remember how that, that saying goes. But essentially, there were two instances in my life that really got me uh, moving and motivated into, into getting this, turning this dream into a reality. And the first one... Uh, definitely was hiking the Appalachian Trail. That that just absolutely solidified the idea that you can, if you undertake something and you work hard at it and you, you get ready and then you push yourself the whole way through, mentally and physically, you can go ahead and, and you can do these giant things, these things that before you step foot on, like before I stepped foot on that trail, I did not know what the heck was going on. And when I finally got off of that trail at the very end, I felt, I really felt kind of invincible. I felt, wow, I can't believe I just did that. And you'd look back at that map and see all those states and see all those mountains and all those miles and, I just felt like, all right, what's next? We gotta, we gotta, we gotta up the ante here. And you know, at that time, I was so into hiking, obviously, because I've been doing it for so long that I started thinking about the other long distance trails. But it wasn't too long before that idea of the trip around the world came into play. Um, it was just, it was, it was one of those things where that realization came, and it was more of it's time to maybe start looking into that um, because if I can do this, I definitely want to give that a shot. So that was that point in my life. And then the other one is one that you wouldn't think, or at least I wouldn't. And when I went back to the bitter end, and I, I, was, I think I was planning on working there for three, three and a half years to save as much money as possible. So I had already sort of taken the steps towards meeting this goal and getting the boat and then diving in head first. And I was down there and it was good and I was enjoying it. We had great teams of people. And I think there was probably more probability that I would have just stayed down there and kept going. And, you know, hindsight being 2020, holy cow, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say I'm glad I didn't um, because, you know, the year after the hurricane hit and ripped that place right out. And I don't know what that would have done sort of to my life, um, watching all that work get completely ripped away. But regardless, they're back up and running. It's going to be the place going to be better than ever. Absolutely amazing. Um, but 
when I was down there towards, I don't know which year it was, like the second year or something, uh, there was a friend of ours, a guy named Ross, who, who, he was a kite surfer and he had worked with some of the guys down there. He wasn't really part of the bitter end, um, but he ended up coming down there and he had procured, uh, basically it was like a 47 or 48 foot old spray, like a replica of the spray, like a beautiful old boat. Holy cow. And this guy was almost half my age, maybe a little more. He was like 20 in his early twenties. And I'm just looking at this guy with complete and utter jealousy thinking to myself, oh, look at that. And and there were a lot of other people as well who I saw, you know, with these sailboats. And I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, how are these, these guys doing this? They got these boats that cost a pretty good amount of money, and they're living down here in the Caribbean, and they're doing like little side gigs here, this, that, and the other thing. And they're making it happen. They're living the dream. Like, what the heck? How come I'm, how come I'm working, you know, sixty to eighty hours a week, and these guys are out there just partying and having a good time, and then sailing off to other islands, and and I'm right here. And I think for the first time, I was ever like, what is going on? This is this is not adding up. But that that became sort of a pivotal moment in my head of like, okay. How much do we have so far, and what kind of boat am I going to try and get, and how much is it going to cost, and when can we do this? So those those two moments really uh, really wrapped it up, and then and then obviously uh, hooking into that that movie Joe versus the volcano. I used to watch that all the time, uh, specifically for, and uh, I would I would recommend anybody to to go and watch the full movie because I think it's very enjoyable. Tom Hanks, uh, early days. Spielberg, early days. But, uh, and I know I've ranted about this one time on the podcast a long time ago, but the scene where he quits his job is absolutely uh it resonated with me so hard and i i you can see it on youtube it's just essentially he's just realizing that he's he's been selling his life to his employer for 300 bucks a month or whatever and it's because he's too afraid to live his own life and uh he has that crazy realization and i it's obviously a pretty funny one mr wahoo watori <laughs> I'm gonna leave you here. What could be worse than that? Oh man, I could still. I can't. I couldn't do that monologue verbatim, or else I would right now. But it is. I don't know for whatever reason that was those those two plus little Joe versus a volcano sprinkled on top. That was uh, that was what did it. And I don't know. Essentially, it was um, it was go time. And so I'd committed sort of to it. I had worked hard enough and saved enough money to do it. And Came back up to the states, got the boat. Uh, I, you know, we can get into that sort of stuff on a on a different uh, podcast, but essentially, got the boat away from the old owner, which was a good thing, uh, and sort of separated myself there. It's kind of it's kind of strange always how how when people sell things like boats, even if they don't ever use them, they typically put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into them. So you grow attached and then, you know, you, you don't even, it's not even so much that you want it to go to the right person, but you're, it's hard to let go of, but in any event, wrestled it out of his clutches. And there I am in a marina in Florida with a boat that's two thirds of the way complete, still missing quite a bit of stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, I've actually made the first and probably biggest commitment of my lifetime here, uh, owning this boat and no longer have a job and all this sort of stuff is going through my head, but I'm also able to just sit down below and look around at this this blank canvas of a boat. I mean, when I look around Sparrow right now, I see pictures and paintings and flags and all sorts of me uh, in this boat and lots of pictures of places that Sparrow and I have been. And I don't know, it's it's really, really cool. Uh, it's way, way different. When I 
There was one point where I was I was pretty sure I was going to have to sell Sparrow after that second trip because I was just so broke. And I remember getting into port and ripping everything off the walls and filling in all the screw holes and all that sort of stuff. And it felt so strange, so, so strange down on this boat to see everything blank and to see it even echoed a little differently in here because there wasn't anything taking up all the sound. Uh, chilling and to think that that might happen again is is pretty crazy and I I think also that is some part of the reason why I kind of wanted to do this podcast now Uh, because there is there's a chance I might have to sell this boat and uh, you know not not so much for money because I have a job now but more for life in general because sometimes you do have to move on but I don't want to get sidetracked. I have a tendency to do that, and we can talk about that on another one. But so there I was. I'm in Florida. It's amazing. Life is crazy. I'm in this this crazy marina where people are crashing into boats left, right, and center almost every day because the current rips through there. And I'm on this boat, and I have to get it prepped and ready. The It's sometime in November, and I'm trying to leave no later than uh, January 1st to get down to the Caribbean to start training and start solo sailing. And my plan was just to cast off and sail and and sail down to the British Virgin Islands, do it on my my own. But uh, that was not too acceptable to some of the other people in my family. And uh, the old man was... uh, not really requested. I think he was basically told, yeah, you're, you're going with them, <laughs> which is, which is great because that ended up being quite an adventure. You know, we lost the, the ability to use the engine pretty quickly. Uh, oh man, that, that just, it was, uh, it was a long trip. I think it took us 14 days to get down there. Cause when we got becalmed, we got becalmed. We just sat and, it was it was a great bonding experience for my father and I, which was really awesome. Probably the most uh, one of the most influential time, or not influential, but it was it was a time where I got to know know him more than uh, I think I ever have in my life, which is is pretty cool. But we get down there, and you know now I'm in the Caribbean, and I still haven't solo sailed. I'm I'm I mean I've solo sailed teeny little boats on little lakes but I've never solo sailed on a passage or anything like that. And the time is ticking. So it's January. My plan is to be set off by the end of September, beginning of October of that year. So essentially I have, you know, 10, 10 months, uh, nine or 10 months to get this boat ready and also to get myself ready. I, again, I still have not solo sailed. So I'm in the Caribbean. Uh, i at that point, I still had a girlfriend, and she was still down there in the BVI working. So I was kind of trying to balance that a little bit. So I'm down in the Caribbean, and I have when you check in, when you check in in the BVI, they'll give you a month. So I've got a month to go get get the engine fixed, do some sailing, you know, right there in that little chain of islands, hang out with everybody, see all my friends, because uh, I had just left that job not not too long before. And I'm trying to balance quite a bit of things, and I'm also trying to figure out how to do this training. And my idea was to do island hops, so BVI down, you know, you've got then St. Martin and then Antigua and such and such down the, the island chain, and I had a lot of good friends in Dominica, which lies about 270 miles uh, away from the BVI, and then friends in St. Lucia and all the way down to Grenada. And so my idea was just to start doing those hops and get the boat ready as best as I thought it was, and then sail from the first one was the BVI down to Dominica. And that one ended up, I think, taking me like three days. The winds were a little bit out of the south, so it was a lot of beating to get up there or to get over there. And then that one went pretty well, but I found quite a bit of leaks um, and other issues with the boat. 
problems with some of the sales, um, you know, just trying to work all the kinks out. And really on that first one, I think my biggest difficulty was just trying to figure out how I can sleep on this boat while I'm still sailing and there's the threat of, of traffic. Luckily on that trip in the, in the Caribbean, most, most of the shipping and boats and all that sort of stuff, they're, they're going Island to Island because it's more, uh, economical to actually, you know, stop at a whole bunch of islands instead of shoot from one to the other and back to the other and this and that. I was sort of going to stay pretty far off the islands. I was way out of sight of them because I was trying to do a direct path. And yeah, so it's like a three day, <clears throat> three day overnight trip. Um, and that one, I definitely arrived pretty exhausted. And I believe I arrived in the middle of the night anchoring in a place that I've never been to and sort of learning, learning these things where I'm like, boy, I don't want to do that again. And then the next trip, I'd end up doing it pretty much again. Um, I remember coming back to the BVI and that was all a big downwinder and, and trying to figure out how, how Sparrow especially can handle, you know, all these different elements where I, I, where you're trying to sail downwind, but the swell's up and the winds are super light, so the bolt's rolling and you're trying to keep these sails filled and trying this and trying that. It was all just trial and error and lots and lots of errors, but I I typically learn so much better when I'm dealing with the errors that I'm making because it's the hard way. You're out there sweating and pulling sails all back down and putting them up and pulling them down. And you're just like, this is absolutely miserable. Well, those are the times you don't forget. I can close my eyes and imagine this one instance where I had an asymmetrical spinnaker and it was in a snuffer sack. So it's like a sock, basically, that you can you can pull the whole thing down and it, it, it wraps all the sail up real tight and so the sail can't fill up. And then if you want to launch it again, you can just pull a little line and the sock goes up and the sail goes boom and it's out. And I, the winds were so light, but there was still like this, this easterly swell. And I'm just thinking, well, I just need more sail. I need more sail. And I try to put this thing up. Sun's blazing, you know, Caribbean heat and water's just crystal clear. I just, I, right now, I just have my eyes closed because I'm just remembering this. This is, <laughs> uh, and the boat's just rolling, so it's really hard. I'm, I'm scrambling around on the deck. I don't even have the mainsail up, and uh, or no, I do have the mainsail up, and it's slatting. And I go and I, I get this whole thing set up. I, I raise the halyard. The sock with the sail inside is up. And I go and I unleash it, and I'm thinking, yes, this is going to work. I'm so proud of myself because it's a lot of work just to get that done. And uh, sail fills up for one second, and then the mast swings to one side, and it loses it, and then it loses it, and then it wraps right around the forest day, and it wraps tight. And now I've got a big hourglass up there that's just wrapping more and more because we're 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 rolling so much that the mast is just it's like a a pendulum it's just back and forth back and forth oh man and it took absolutely forever and during this time uh i don't know which coast guard station it is and what coast guard i feel like it's a french uh coast guard thing from saint martin but the plane buzzes us and i'm all embarrassed and i'm just working to try and get this sail back down because it bites down on that wire pretty hard and eventually after maybe half an hour I finally get it and uh I just I remember sitting on that deck soaking wet with sweat and salt water from the sail because obviously it fell in the water eventually and and then I just figured well I guess I got a motor and I went to fire up the motor but the motor wouldn't suck water in I couldn't get that prime so it wasn't having cooling going on oh man and i finally figured that out i just cracked open the sea strainer which makes you so you don't get seaweed in the engine and as soon as i did that then the water started flowing and then i started moving and it was instances like that you know over and over every single trip had two or three of these things go on and i slowly started building this experience up 
And after, uh, during that time, so January, February, March, April, I think it wasn't until the end of April that I wanted to set out on a big trip. And so I had done, I had done the BVI to Dominica, Dominica to the BVI, uh, BVI to St. Lucia, St. Lucia to Dominica, Dominica to BVI, and I think one or two more of the in that realm. I wanted to make it to Grenada at one point and um, discovered some serious leaks, holes that had literally just holes where the person had, had just squirted some um, silicone into them. And the silicone popped out eventually. And those were directly over the nav station, over the electronics, and water was essentially just pouring in. And I, that one trip where I found that one out, we got hit by pretty substantial wind uh, for 24 hours. And I ended up pulling into St. Lucia for a second time. And because I knew the harbor of Rodney Bay, they've got a great marina there and I was able to get things fixed up and all that sort of stuff. And that was a pretty interesting one because I made it through that. I remember being down to like my second reef, which is teeny and I believe a storm sail. And when I got in, I remember people talking about two boats that had been lost that were headed towards like Antigua or something. And thinking to myself holy cow that that was definitely a blow and if there are boats that got lost and i made it through that you know i i feel sorry for the other boats nobody died i don't think but i was kind of that that boosted my confidence in a way because i sort of knew all right well we weathered that storm we made it through and obviously there were lots of squalls but that was that was like a 24 hour I don't know. It was a bit of a blow, that one. And I uh, still can remember that because I, I was in between two islands where everything was sort of... Holy cow. That's an alarm. Jeez Louise. This is the worst alarm noise in the world. And uh, I don't know why I have it set on that. I guess to just wake me up, huh? <laughs> mm. Oh, that coffee is good. So come April... I I know that my time is running out. I've done all these small sails. Probably by that point, sailed about 4,000 miles or something. And it's time to go out. And I want to do, my goal was to do, initially, I thought, and this is, how, this is sort of how ignorant I was at the time, but initially I felt, all right, I'll leave from the BVI. I'll go north up towards Bermuda try and get all the way over to the Cape Verde Islands and then come back. And I'm thinking, yeah, that'll take like a month. I, I think I measured out the distances, and I, I don't know if I was just way off or I overestimated uh, Sparrow's speed in the trades or something. But in any event, I, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I just want to be out there a month, month and a half, and then I'll sail back up up to the United States and get the boat ready for the big trip. Well, that did not go according to plan. I I took off north from the BVI, hoping to sort of catch into a nice little weather system uh, headed off to the east because I would be on the southern edge of it with the westerly winds and just ride those across, get out as far as I could mid-Atlantic, and then work my way south, hit the easterly trades, and then come back towards the Caribbean. It didn't work out all that well. I almost got up to two different systems, but each time I was becalmed a little too early and I never actually hooked into them. So I ended up beating and beating and beating and beating instead of being able to ride these these winds. But kept going, kept going, worked my way out a little bit, headed back towards the Caribbean, and then got a favorable wind to, to head out into the Atlantic Long story short, I'm out there for, I think, 27, 28 days, and I ended up circling all the way back to Dominica again. Uh, so I went from the BVI to Dominica, which is 270 miles, but I ended up doing it in, uh, I don't know how many miles it was. I want to say it was probably about 3,000 miles or so <laughs> in 27 days. 
of just ripping out there. And on that trip, uh, you know, I think some of the more eventful things I had a I had a leak coming out of one of the transducers and so water coming in. And it, it wasn't it was trickling in at first, but then it, it was sort of a steady stream eventually. And that was one of the times where I, I hearkened back to the old timey sailing uh ideas of of yar or of your i don't know i don't know why i said that but basically went and uh made sawdust with a saw and a board and put it in a plastic bag and went down below the boat and opened up the bag and rubbed the sawdust all over the hull where that transducer is and lo and behold the leak sucked in some of the wood particles the wood particles swelled up and the leak stopped and it didn't leak for the whole rest of the time I was out there uh, on that trip. And that was kind of an interesting, spooky one being out there. And, and that was one of the first times I was swimming, uh, becalmed on the sea and alone on the boat, you know, 400 miles from land, 500 miles from land, something like that. And those are the memories, again, and experiences that, that sort of built up over these, these months. And that was also one of the times where I sucked water back into the engine and had to fix it while I was out at sea, which means pulling a lot of stuff off the engine, getting all the water out, putting everything back, changing the oil, changing all that sort of stuff. And uh, that was a bit of a nightmare. And that happened only oof, hours outside of Dominica. And I probably could have sailed in, but... I figured I'd I'd like to have the use of the engine, and I was still hours away, so I had time, and I figured, you know, I might as well just do it. It'll distract me anyway before I get back to uh, a little tiki bar down there on the beach <laughs> in Dominica, which I hope is still there, because it is awesome. Uh, and I guess there is something to be said on that. This whole training exercise was definitely, for that whole winter, was made that much more enjoyable by... Plenty of good, good friends, new friends, old friends, tiki bars, beach nights, all that sort of stuff. I mean, and obviously the support from from the bitter end as well, the ownership there, and all the staff and everything. Holy cow, just such good people. Um, but in any event, I get back from that one. I'm in Dominica. I'm going to do one more quick pit stop to the BVI. So I had one last little passage. And then it was the, the final passage from the BVI up just in the beginning of June. And that would give me, I figured it would be a two-week trip. So I would be able to get up to Maine to prep the boat. And I'd have pretty much July, August, September, and then take off in October. So I'd, I'd give myself three months to do the big projects that I had listed. Because this whole time I am scribbling down in that logbook every issue every idea anything i thought like some of the big ones biggest biggest project was ripping the old teak decks off of the boat and replacing them with non-skid adding another layer of fiberglass uh getting a new wind vane because i had oh that was a good one coming back in between saint martin and the bvi must have hit something or just found the the right uh, weak point, but Mongo, Mongo one, the old one that came with the boat, there's two arms that, that reach out and hold it essentially. And one of them snapped off in the middle of the night and Mongo tilted way over. We rounded up. I come up and I can't see Mongo and, uh, still probably 50 miles away or no, probably only 30 miles away from the BVI, but middle of the night and was able to like lash it all together and, and still sail in and, Gosh, oh man, that was on the last trip uh, to get to the BVI before I, I headed north. But so all these projects uh, that needed to happen, and also I had sort of at that time designed uh, sh the shelving units and things like that for the trip because they all of this was me trying to look at this whole adventure and and figure out what's going to work best for around the world and. Oh man, it just 
It was cool, but I I knew I knew that that last voyage was going to be a toughie because then I'm I'm no longer just sort of playing around in the trade winds. I got to go through the variables and get up north and deal with weather systems and the Gulf Stream and all that sort of stuff. And you know, it it actually went really well. We saw some pretty bad weather in the the Gulf Stream. Nothing crazy. Um, a little bit stressful. I, I do remember one day, you know, kind of getting like emotional. Because the weather was getting pretty ugly. I was approaching George's bank, and we had some pretty violent squalls. And, and I, I remember at one point talking to my old man on the sat phone and sort of having to uh, like bite my lower lip because I, I was sort of, I don't know, I, I think I was pretty scared at that point, And I just wanted to be like, oh, God. But I didn't. Um, which I don't know why I didn't. I probably should have. Would have been probably would have been a nice little stress relief. But that was the first uh, inkling that I ever had that when you're out at sea alone, talking to people on cell phone is not a good thing mentally for you because eventually you got to hang that phone up and then you're you're it's it's almost like leaving, departing from from shore once again and but doing it while you're out in the middle uh, so i don't know for me personally it never never was a good thing uh but yeah eventually 14 days later i believe i pulled into gloucester massachusetts and my old man came out and we sailed the final voyage uh up to rockland maine which is just an overnight 120 130 miles something like that and uh, the boat was hauled out for for the remainder of the summer, and basically it was just getting ready to hit the uh, hit the entire planet, <laughs> hit the big sail around the world in October. And so those were sort of the steps that I took, uh, essentially, uh, for getting ready for that big trip and. I don't know. I look back on that that time in my life, and it was so much fun, so much fun. And I wouldn't have been able to do it had I not buckled down really hard, saved as much as I could. I mean, those were some pretty lean three years before that, for sure. But it also ended up being that much better once I actually had the boat and was able to enjoy more time in the Caribbean while training for the big trip. And so, I don't know, it's, it was just, I don't know. There's, there's part of me that, that loves the adventure, but I also, there's part of me, I think that really loves the lead up to adventure, the planning, the, the work that goes into it, the stress, even, you know, all these things, they, they add up to, to something that I think is, is kind of fun. I mean, I've always thought about that, when I was in high school, it'd be getting close to Thanksgiving vacation or Christmas vacation or something like that. And I used to always, I, I was very, very aware of, of how good it felt for the two or three days before the break starts. You know, it's like everybody just wants the break to start. It's like, I can't wait. I can't wait. I used to savor those days of like, Oh, we're almost there. Yeah. Yeah. Because you, I don't know for me, I just, sometimes that's what made, that made me just feel, I almost felt like that was, that was a better feeling than actually being on the break. It was like anticipation was, it's one of my favorite things. And I don't know. I, I kind of wonder if, I wonder if that's something that might be missing in my life right now because I don't have a solid plan. I've got these few little seeds that I've planted in my in my adventure brain. The Pacific Crest Trail, maybe next May. The Atlantic 8, maybe this fall. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. There's There's... I don't know. There's there's question. There's questions about what I want to do with this this boat and in the future and and just this fall. Um, you know, the podcast as well. I'm I'm enjoying more and more doing this and doing it with other people and 
I really want to do the road trip, but it's, and, and right now I'm working towards that goal because I'm saving everything and, uh, I'm, I'm slowly devouring a lot of the cans of food on the boat <laughs> so that, uh, I can save my pennies. Cause if the gas prices keep going up, it's going to be, maybe I'll get a bicycle and, uh, ride it around the country and do the podcast. I would do that. Honestly, uh, if I was going to do it in the summertime, the winter might be a little bit hard to uh, get over some of those uh, mountain passes out west. <laughs> but who knows? Who knows? All right. I actually have to go and uh, start getting ready for work here. Uh, I got to go hit the shower or as Murphy calls it, the rain box. But uh, yeah, um, that's pretty much, in a nutshell, the prep work that I did to be able to get get going and uh, do the trip around the world with the with the old mighty sparrow. So hopefully you enjoyed that sort of blast from the past. And boy, like I said, I got a lot of people lined up, but pulling that trigger is, uh, I'm finding it difficult, but I'm going to keep pushing on. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll get an interview out maybe even before this. I'm not sure when I'm going to put this one out, but we had a great, great month. Over 9,000 downloads last night or for last month, which is a new record for us uh, here at the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast. And just wanted a big shout out to all the Patreon family. You guys are absolutely incredible. Month after month, you're, you're still sticking into it. And I really, really appreciate it. So um, big thanks for that. For anybody else who feels like they want to support the podcast, keep listening. Um, you can listen to it or you can head over to Patreon, Sailing Into Oblivion, and uh, you can support the show right there. Other than that, um, yeah, I'll, uh, we'll be looking out for, uh, for old, the old West Sail Sequoia. If I get any news updates on that, I'll be pushing those out. And um, if you want to contact the show, just go to sailingintooblivion.com and uh, you can do a little submission form there. Those emails go directly to me, and I read them, and, uh, and who knows? There's a few people that I've, I've talked about straight away on the next podcast, and uh, they, they email me back, and they're like, whoa, holy cow, I didn't, didn't even think you would get that. <laughs> so pretty cool feeling. But uh, thanks for listening. Enjoy your day. Enjoy June. Holy cow, the summer is here, and we will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening.